Hi friends, I'm Tierney. And I'm Shelby. And we're Dead Dead Drunk. Alright guys, what's the best chip? In in the left corner, we have Munchos. They're weighing in at um, 160 calories, about 4.5 servings per container. They're here. They're queer. They're ready to party. A light tasting crispy snack coming at ya. Wait, I don't have the like stats for. And sun in chips. our right corner, we have Sun Chips. Want want want. Want want They're delicious. They come in a variety of flavors. You can get. A variety pack for fifteen ninety nine from some place called Boxed. I don't know what that is. Oh, you can get munchos at the corner store, baby. You can also get sun chips at the corner store. Well, you know Harvest what? Harvest Cheddar is the best flavor. I, I enjoy Harvest Cheddar, I won't lie. That's a really good one. That's pretty good. That's you pretty much the best one. flavor. You should just pick that one. But did you know that munchos are made by the Cheetos brand? Okay. Sun chips are made by somebody that I'm Frito Lay. Yeah, not Cheetos. Okay, but Frito's it's pretty good. There's original, and they're delicious. There's French onion, garden salsa, and harvest cheddar. And also sun puffs. Oh, Don't eat those. Ew. No, I don't advocate for that. <laughs> All right, I think munchos win. No, munchos can't just win. You Comment can't just down decide. Below. Comment down below. Down below in, from, in our YouTube video. <laughs> Leave us a five-star review. <laughs> and in the five-star review, tell us munchos or sun chips. Harvest cheddar sun chips, argue, arguably, are the best sun chip. I could eat a whole bag of the regular sun chips, but I could easily eat a whole bag of the harvest cheddar sun chips. I don't think I've ever had either of the other flavors besides harvest cheddar, to be honest. I don't think I can, like, judge this appropriately. You don't really have to try the other flavors. I think if we're pitting something against munchos, it should be harvest cheddar sun chips against munchos. Why? Because that's the best kind? Yeah, but also regular sun chips would win against munchos because it's munchos. You don't like munchos? No, I mean, like, they're okay. It, it tastes like you just kind of skinned a potato, though. They're a light and airy snack. Yeah. If I wanted light and airy, I would have, like, popcorn or popped. Those stupid chips. Ew. I want a snack. I want These some are snack, a snack in my snack. These are a fucking snack. No, I want it to be a snacky snack. God damn it. All right. Who are we <laughs> talking about today, Shelby? <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about Gerard Schaefer. Yeah, we are. You guys might recognize that name from our last episode. He was one of Sandra London's boyfriends. We already talked about Danny Rowling in that episode. And now we're going to go into the crimes that Gerard Schaefer committed. Yeah. February is the month of Sandra London's lovers. <laughs> Just kidding. There were only like two, I think. I there hope. are only two like noteworthy ones. Oh, the other ones are just lowly criminals Normal. that get out because of the bail reform <laughs> <laughs> wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Ooh, callbacks anyway for this drink we found a drink called the ex-boyfriend which is great appropriate the traditional drink is lemon lime soda raspberry liqueur and vodka but because gerard schaefer is in florida we gave it a floridian aspect <laughs> so what you're gonna do is take a lime white claw and mix it with a black cherry white claw and drink it <laughs> <laughs> Woo, the ex-boyfriend. Woo, the ex-boyfriend. <laughs> the Florida ex-boyfriend. The Florida style. 
Although we said that. He's Sorry not if you live in Florida. from Florida. <laughs> oh, you know what we forgot to say? Mm. Are you ready for the case? <laughs> Drink up, dead junkies. <laughs> You're right. Ha-cha-cha, ha-cha-cha, ha-cha-cha-cha. <laughs> Snarf it down. <laughs> Slug this shit down and get ready for the case. Slug this shit down. Take your one white claw, mix it with the other white claw. Drink up, dead junkies. Woo. I would say put it in our mason jar. That would be very Florida. Mm. Yes. Which you can buy at our shop. We'll get there. Sorry, moms and murder. Oh, I forgot. They, <laughs> they're they there. <laughs> I don't think any less of them that they're in Florida, though. I think they have the inside scoop for a Florida man. I love to hear what he's up to. <laughs> yeah. They're probably married to a Florida man. No. I bet they have super hot husbands. <laughs> Florida men. Uh, do you think they do? <laughs> You know when Spongebob sings the we're men, that's their husbands. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. He was born in Wisconsin on March 15th, 1946, but he spent most of his formative years in Atlanta, Georgia. He was the first of the Catholic couple's three children and never really got along well with his emotionally abusive father, who Schaefer believed always favored his younger sister. It's hard to get along with those emotionally abusive ones. So, needless to say, his childhood wasn't all that great. Schaefer admitted to killing animals and cross-dressing during his youth. Some sources report that the latter may have been an effort to gain his father's affection since he apparently preferred his daughter over his other two children. However, other sources state that Schaefer had admitted that the cross-dressing was just a part of his successful attempt to avoid being drafted during the Vietnam War. (laughs) He nailed it. Yeah, I understand that. In 1960, while Schaefer was in prep school, the family moved to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, which is where all the horror started. Stored <laughs> Stored It's where all the horror started. <laughs> Let's get started. In the right corner, we have Munchos. I'm going to say it again, where I go, which is where all the horror started. <laughs> Okay. So while Schaefer was in high school, he somehow managed to maintain a relationship with a girl named Cindy. Their three-year-long relationship was an odd one in which Schaefer would make Cindy participate in bizarre sexual fantasies where he tore off her clothes and pretended to rape her. After graduating from St. Thomas Aquinas High School in 1964, Schaefer moved on to attend the Florida Atlantic University. On October 2nd, 1966, Nancy Leachner, age 20, and Pamela Nader, age 21, met up with their boyfriends at Alexander Springs Park in the Ocala National Forest in Lake County, Florida. While the boys went diving, the girls walked along the park's nature trail. A witness reported seeing the two young women walking with an unidentified man following close behind them. No one has seen them since. Investigators determined that Nancy and Pamela were most likely abducted and taken from the park, where they were then murdered. Of course, they looked into the boyfriends, but there was no evidence pointing to them as the culprit. These two young women are the earliest known victims of Gerard Schaefer. In his teens, Schaefer developed an obsession with women's underwear and began spying on one of his neighbors, Lee Hainline Bonadies. I I suck at names. You know that. Bonadies nuts. (laughs) Her husband, Charles, remembered her telling him that her childhood neighbor, Schaefer, had offered her a $20,000 salary to join the CIA, which she naturally considered a ridiculous joke. 
When Charles came home to find his wife missing on September 8th, 1969, he discovered a note that said she had gone to Miami to speak with Schaefer about the job. This alarmed all of the Bonadies family, and her brother finally managed to get in touch with Schaefer to ask about his missing sister. The answer he got, however, just left him with more questions. Schaefer told the man that Lee had called him asking for a ride to the airport as she was planning to fly to Cincinnati, Ohio. Why? We don't know. Schaefer also told Bonadiz's brother that she had not been sure of her departure time and promised to call him back with the information. Which seems far-fetched. How would you not know of your own departure time? Yeah. That was the last Schaefer said he ever heard from her. Later, Lee's car was found abandoned in a Fort Lauderdale parking lot. It was reported that Schaefer has often complained of Lee, quote, taunting him by undressing with her curtains open. Her skull was discovered to have multiple bullet holes in it when it was finally found at a construction site in 1978. I think this was the woman that he pointed out to Sandra London when they were dating. Oh, that okay. she talked about in her interview. Which is really creepy. If you guys remember from last episode, he pointed up to her and was like, this woman gets dressed in front of me. She undresses at me and flaunts her body at me and I'm going to get her back for it. And I guess gross. he did. That's gross. Yeah. In 1968, while in college, Schaefer married Martha Fogg. The marriage, unsurprisingly, didn't go very well. <laughs> After a few years of trying to make it work, Martha filed for divorce in May of 1970, claiming, quote, extreme cruelty. Could understand that, yeah. Yeah. In 1969, he became a teacher at Plantation High School. No. <laughs> the career didn't last long, so don't worry. Schaefer was soon fired for what the principal called, quote, totally inappropriate behavior. I don't know what the totally inappropriate behavior was, but while he was employed at the school, he may have taken his fourth victim. On December 18th, 1969, just three months after the disappearance of Lee Bonadise, Carmen Candy Hillock, a 22-year-old cocktail waitress, called her sister-in-law to tell her about a meeting she had that night with a male teacher from a local junior college. Hillock tells her that this man claimed to have done undercover work for the government and could potentially have an employment opportunity for her. It sounds familiar, right? Because that's what he told Lee. Mm -hmm. Hillock sounded very excited at this prospect as the man claimed it would offer her international travel opportunities and a high salary. Hillock also told her sister-in-law that she had purchased new black leather heels and was planning on wearing them with a black cocktail dress to her meeting. Her sister-in-law didn't hear from her after that day and finding that odd, she finally decided to go to Carmen's apartment to check on her. On Christmas Day, she drove over to the apartment and found that Carmen's keys, driver's license, and vehicle registration were missing, as well as the aforementioned outfit that Carmen had put together for her meeting with the unidentified teacher. Later, her car was found abandoned in a parking lot, but there were no signs of Carmen anywhere. Her skeletal remains were discovered 10 years later in January of 1978 in a section of Boca Raton that was under construction during the time of Carmen's disappearance. The crime matches Schaefer's M.O. almost perfectly, including offering untold excitement and riches to young women and dumping the body in a construction site. So this next part is a little rough as it involves young children. So if you don't feel up for stomaching something like that, um, press the 15 seconds forward button until it sounds like we're done. I don't know how long it's going to take. Peggy Rand, age 9, and Wendy Stevenson, age 8, vanished from the Pompano Beach in Florida on December 29, 1969. This is just 11 days after the disappearance of Carmen Hillock. 
A family friend had decided to take Peggy to the beach that day, and Wendy came with her uncle. Although both the young girls attended Palmview Elementary School, they didn't really know each other well before that day. That day, the two little girls just happened to meet on the beach and became fast friends. At around one in the afternoon, the girls decided to go to the parking lot to buy some ice cream. The ice cream store clerk was the last person to see Peggy and Wendy, but he also told investigators that a strange man had bought the two little girls ice cream cones. The stranger was described as a white man in his 20s, six feet tall and weighing about 200 pounds. According to one source, the clerk also said the man had, quote, sandy colored hair, gray eyes and a humped nose. That sounds like George Schaefer to me. Yeah. The remains of the two little girls were never recovered, but it is widely believed that they were among Schaefer's many victims since he lived in that area and knew the Pompano Beach very well. In the late 1960s, he tried to join the priesthood, but was turned away by St. John's Seminary because they claimed he didn't have enough faith. This enraged Schaefer so much that he ended up abandoning the Catholic Church completely. I guess if you can't join them, leave them. (laughs) That's my motto. (laughs) With no other option, Schaefer decided on law enforcement as his career path, and in 1971, at the age of 25, he graduated as a patrolman. Unfortunately, Schaefer's whole thing didn't change. He's still, he's on a murder spree, so now he has a badge to back him up. Love that journey for him. (laughs) On January 5th, 1972, Belinda Hutchins, a 22-year-old cocktail waitress, got into a blue Datsun driven by a stranger. She had a history with the police since Hutchins sometimes worked as a prostitute and her husband struggled with an addiction to drugs. Her husband told the police that Belinda often mentioned her extramarital affair and insisted on living her own lifestyle. Which, good, power to you. Her husband and two-year-old daughter never saw her again after that day. It was known that Belinda had dated Schaefer while he was attending the police academy. So she was probably another one of his victims. God damn it. Then, over a month later, on February 29th, 1972, 13-year-old Deborah Sue Lowe goes missing after leaving her home in Pompano Beach, Florida, to walk to Rickards Middle School. Deborah never made it to the school and has never been seen or heard from since that day. The police discovered her school books in a trash can about a block from her home. The authorities initially believed that she ran away, but Deborah's family insists that she wouldn't do anything like that. Instead, they believe she was another victim of Gerard Schaefer. Schaefer worked with Deborah's father and visited the family home on numerous occasions and vice versa. So it's entirely possible that Deborah was another innocent girl taken by Schaefer. Probably willingly. This is so many. Like how many is he up to right now? This would be eight, I think. That's crazy. Yeah. Let me backtrack just to confirm that. Because he's had with the little girls. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. It sounds like literally any woman that he has a connection to in his life, he's murdered. Yeah. Except Sandra London. Yeah, maybe she was just too crazy. (laughs) Too too crazy for him to touch that way. If you haven't listened to the Sandra London episode, you can decide for yourself. The next month, Gerard Schaefer received a commendation from his department for a drug bust. But just another month later, he was fired. The reasons for this vary depending on who you ask, but according to an FBI source, it was due to him running a female traffic violator's information through the department's computer to get her personal contact information and then using it to call her and ask her out on dates. Which is just terrifying. Yeah. 
His unemployment didn't last long, however. In June of 1972, he was hired by the Martin County Sheriff's Department and moved to Stewart, Florida. On July 21st, 1972, Gerard Schaefer spotted two young girls hitchhiking while he was out on patrol. Schaefer abducted Pamela Wells, 17, and Nancy Trotter, 18, using his uniform to convince them that accepting a ride from him was safer than going with any other driver. After he brought the two young women back to the halfway house where they were staying, he threatened to arrest them for hitchhiking, which was actually not against the law in Martin County. Schaefer then offered to return the next day and drive the two girls to the beach. When Schaefer picked them up the next day, he didn't take the girls to the beach. Instead, he abducted them and took them to Hutchinson Island. Holding them at gunpoint, Schaefer told the two girls that he was going to sell them into prostitution as sex slaves. Then he bound them both and left them balancing on tree roots with a noose around their neck. If they slipped even a little bit, they may fall and hang themselves. Schaefer then left the girls to attend to a police call, promising his victims that he would return shortly. In that time, Pamela and Nancy managed to escape and made their way to the nearest highway, where they flagged down a police car. The girls had no problem describing their attacker and could even name him since Schaefer had given them his real name. All right. That's like serial killer 101, right? Not to give your people your name. I mean, Ted Bundy's always went with Ted. I guess so. It, I think it's a confidence thing. Yeah. The amount of confidence. And at this point, he's taken eight lives and has that's not true. supposedly he's taken eight lives. So there might be a little bit of a confidence thing going on here. Ugh, I hate that. Typical man. Am I right? <laughs> The girls were taken down to the Martin County Police Station where Schaefer worked. And when he returned to find the two girls had escaped, he attempted to call the station and explain it away. Schaefer told his boss that he had, quote, done something foolish, and then went on to say that he had pretended to kidnap and threaten the two hitchhikers in order to scare them away from the irresponsible method of travel. Pretended. (laughs) Yeah, okay, buddy. Just like everyone else, Schaefer's boss didn't believe him and ordered him to return to the station. Upon his arrival, Schaefer was stripped of his badge and charged with false imprisonment and two counts of aggravated assault. They had no idea what kind of a monster they had on their hands. Schaefer was released on $15,000 bond, a decision that the courts and law enforcement of Martin County, Florida, will always regret. On September 27th, 1972, while Schaefer was free on bail and awaiting trial, 17-year-old Susan Place and 16-year-old Georgia Jessup disappeared from the Fort Lauderdale area. According to Susan's parents, the girls were last seen leaving her house with an older man who went by the name Jerry Shepard. The girls apparently believed they were just going to play guitar at a nearby beach. Wait, he went by Jerry Shepard? Yeah. That's so close to Gerard Schaefer. Yeah, I know. I don't know why he's even bothering. (laughs) I bet no one would put that together. (laughs) No one will get that. Schaefer abducted the girls and then tortured and murdered both Susan Place and Georgia Jessup. When they never returned, Susan's mother, Lucille Place, reported Schaefer's license plate number along with a description of his blue-green Datsun. Elise Lena Farmer, 14, and Mary Alice Briscolina, also 14, disappeared from Pompano Beach, Florida on October 23, 1972. Although Elsie was reported missing the next day, Mary's family waited a week, believing that she had simply run away from home. Both Elsie and Mary's skeletal remains were discovered on January 17, 1973, at a construction site near Plantation High School, where Gerard Schaefer used to work. Later that year, in December of 1972, 
Schaefer appeared in court in relation to the July abductions of Pamela Wells and Nancy Trotter. Unfortunately, he took a plea bargain, which allowed Schaefer to plead guilty to just one charge of aggravated assault. He received a sentence of just one year. Despite the sentencing, Schaefer did not begin serving his time until January 15, 1973, which left him plenty of time to continue his killing spree. On January 8th, just a week before his sentence was set to begin, two hitchhikers from Iowa, Colette... Okay, prepare yourself. Mm -hmm. Colette Goodenough... (laughs) (laughs) Colette Goodenough and Barbara Ann Wilcox, who were now making their way through Florida, vanished without a trace. In March 1973, the plate that Lucille Place gave to the police finally came back as registered to Gerard Schaefer. It took that long. Damn. Then just a month later, six months after the disappearance of Susan Place and Georgia Jessup, the decomposing and mutilated remains of the girls were discovered in April 1973. The investigators determined from evidence at the scene that the girls had been tied to a tree, decapitated, and butchered. It was also discovered that Susan had been shot in the jaw. They were only able to identify them by using their dental records. But... Doesn't that sound very similar to what he tried to do to those other two girls? Yeah, it sounds identical to what Mm -hmm. he tried to do to them. With the matching plate and Lucille Place's positive identification of Schaefer, the police were able to charge the already incarcerated man with the murders of Place and Jessup. They were also able to obtain a search warrant for the house that Schaefer was sharing with his wife, Teresa Dean Schaefer, and his mother. Evidence found in their search included a stash of women's jewelry, more than a hundred pages of writing and sketches depicting mutilation and murders of young women, and a few newspaper clippings of missing women. The first news clipping referred to the 1969 disappearance of Carmen Hillock. Some of Carmen's jewelry was found in Schaefer's possession, along with a gold-filled tooth that was later identified as Hillock's by her dentist, but no charges were filed. How? That's not good enough information. She, he literally has a to- her tooth? Yeah, I, I think that it is, but... The second news clipping explained the strange disappearance of Lee Bonadice. A piece of her jewelry was also found in Schaefer's possession, but again, no charges were filed. Oh my God. Investigators discovered more jewelry during their search that linked Schaefer to the disappearance of Mary Briscolina and Elsie Farmer. Although their skeletal remains were discovered early that year, no cause of death could be determined. So again, no charges were filed. Okay, but like, what are the odds that he would have all of these different women's that went missing stuff? Like, they're like one of them. Okay, maybe it is coincidence, but like, yeah, no, it's astronomical. I don't know why charges haven't been filed. They should have at least brought him in and questioned him a little bit more. Like, I'm sure that they a little bit. Oh yeah, maybe they didn't do that. I can't be sure of anything. This is Florida. There's no laws when you're drinking claws or when you're in Florida. <laughs> Ain't no laws. That perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> the claw, you have saved our lives. We are eternally grateful. Okay. Police also found a driver's license, a diary, and a book of poetry that belonged to the vanished hitchhikers Colette Goodenough and Barbara Ann Wilcox. The skeletal remains of both girls were discovered years later in January 1977 in a wooded area of Oak Hammock Park in Port St. Luce. Luce? Uh, doesn't matter. Florida. <laughs> At the time. Doesn't matter. It's Florida. <laughs> At the time, no cause of death could be determined and no charges were filed. 
In addition to all of the jewelry and other victims' belongings, police also discovered an address book that had belonged to Belinda Hutchins and the blue suede shoes that Susan Place had been wearing at the time of her disappearance in Schaefer's spare bedroom. With the amount of items discovered in Schaefer's stash, the police's list of suspected victims had risen exponentially. Uh But he only faced charges for two murders. (laughs) Schaefer was indicted on May 18, 1973 for the murders of Susan Place and Georgia Jessup and was held without bond this time. Thankfully. Gerard Schaefer was convicted on two counts of first-degree murder and received two concurrent life sentences. He appealed this conviction, because of course he did. He even went as far as to claim that he had been framed. All his appeals were denied. He later began filing stupid lawsuits against true crime writers, one of which was against author Patrick Kendrick for describing him as, quote, an overweight, doughy, middle-aged man who preyed on victims who were psychologically and physiologically weaker than him. Obviously, he's insecure about his weight. <laughs> yeah, but it's a pretty spot-on description, though. So, I mean, again, you can't sue for defamation if it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Schaefer also filed separate lawsuits against true crime author Sandra London, which you'll remember from last week. Yeah, I didn't know that he filed lawsuits against her. Oh, yeah. It's just as stupid as the other lawsuits. So... <laughs> But he, like, yeah. confessed all of that to her. Yeah. So in the 1990s, London published a collection of Schaefer's stories titled Killer Fiction that described him as a serial killer. But Schaefer has insisted that these written pieces were indeed an art. Police and prosecutors described them as thinly veiled descriptions of actual crimes. He also filed suits against other authors, Colin Wilson and Michael Newton, and FBI agent Robert Ressler for calling him a serial killer. He doesn't like being called a serial killer. Okay, then don't be a serial killer. I don't know what to fucking tell you, Gerard Schaefer. Don't worry, because there's the trial. London brought photocopies of 500 pages of Schaefer's handwritten correspondence, which convinced the judge to dismiss the case completely. There we go. She also provided those 500 pages to Wilson and Newton, and those lawsuits were also thrown out. Schaefer continued to threaten London from prison. He claimed that he had a number of willing agents that would do his bidding, and even once wrote that he, quote, would hate to see something happen to London's family. Oh, my God. He's just jealous that she has a new serial killer boyfriend. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably it. Those handwritten correspondences that London used in her defense were most likely the letters that Schaefer wrote to his attorneys and acquaintances, in which he admits to a lot more. In a letter dated April 9th, 1991, Schaefer references a story from the collection titled Murder Demons, in which he wrote, quote, What crimes am I supposed to confess? Farmer? Briscolina? What do you think? Murder Demons is. He like included the title. What do you think Murder Demons is? You want confessions, but don't recognize them when I anoint you with them. And we've just gotten started. Another correspondence from Schaefer dated January 20th, 1991, dramatically raised the suspected body count in which he wrote, I've always harped on District Attorney Robert Stone's list of 34. In 1973, I sat down and drew up a list of my own. As I recall, my list was just over 80. But not a serial killer, though. Not a serial killer. (laughs) I would love to hear him define serial killer. Me too. But he thought on it a bit more and then went on in his next letter, which he sent out the next day, saying, quote, I'm not claiming a huge number. I would say it runs between 80 and 110. But over eight years and three continents, one whore drowned in her own vomit while watching me disembowel her girlfriend. I'm not sure that counts as a valid kill. 
Did the pregnant ones count as two kills? It can get confusing. Finally, on December 3, 1995, another inmate by the name of Vincent Rivera barged into his cell and slashed Schaefer's throat before stabbing him in both of his eyes. Rivera, who was already serving a sentence of life plus 20 years, was found guilty of murdering Gerard Schaefer and given an additional 53 years and 10 months. But this is where it gets crazy. Rivera never gives any motive for it. But it's thought that he was framed due to his ability to serve as an ear witness to the prison murder of Frank Valdez. Valdez was killed in a physical assault from the correction staff, which was the second one he sustained. But the prison officials declared that he killed himself. Apparently, Rivera had written a complaint regarding the first assault on Valdez, but nothing was done about it. So Rivera was kept in the same cell next to Valdez and heard everything. He was actively trying to reveal the truth by filing multiple grievances and appeals when he was accused of Gerard Schaefer's murder. Schaefer's sister believes that it was a part of a cover-up related to his attempts to get a confession from Otis Toole about his involvement in the disappearance of a little boy named Adam Walsh. I don't know about that. But it's more likely that it was due to Schaefer's known tendency to rat out his fellow inmates. Apparently, in the year before his death, Schaefer had repeatedly been pelted with human feces and had his cell set on fire twice. London reported that he had made multiple statements to her in which he declared himself the, quote, death row law clerk due to his self-appointed job of getting confidential information from prisoners and then giving it to the prosecutor's office to be used against them at trial which is a super popular thing to do in prison. Schaefer's classification officer even told London that this was why he was being targeted because his last attempt would have given the prosecutors information on an inmate who was well-respected behind bars. The official story was that Vincent Rivera killed Schaefer in an argument over a cup of coffee. But after she attended the trial and spoke with the accused, London declared the story implausible and noted a few little-known facts in support of her argument. First, London mentioned the full palm print in blood that was discovered on Schaefer's cell wall. The lab results determined that it was not a match for either Schaefer or Rivera. But this evidence has been thrown out and was never presented to the jury. Wow. Then London pointed out that Schaefer's body had been discovered covered in boot prints and expert testimony at Rivera's trial determined that the pattern of the prints matched the boots issued to correctional officers and no prisoners wore those kinds of shoes. I just got chills. Yeah. (laughs) So to summarize all of that for you, Gerard Schaefer was a serial killer who got away with it for years and then he was arrested and convicted for only two murders. Then, while in prison, Schaefer was murdered by Florida correctional officers who then framed Vincent Rivera for the murder to prevent him from bringing to light the fact that they murdered another inmate named Frank Valdez. Whew! (laughs) (laughs) That was great. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) I loved that. Nailed it. Nailed it! Oh my god, wow. Yeah. So, it's nutty. I didn't know about that. Yeah. I didn't know he was murdered. That was the craziest part to me going in. Because you, I mean, if you look up Gerard Schaefer, you're like, yeah, oh, that guy's a serial killer. And then you're like, wait, what? That's crazy shit. Yeah. Yeah. It's a crazy story around Schaefer and London. And London and Danny Rowling and all of, I guess it's just her whole life. It's crazy. It's (laughs) It's crazy down there. Oh my God. (laughs) So if you want to talk to us about how crazy bonkers this is, or if you live in Florida and you want to defend your state, you can go ahead and email us at deadjunkpod at gmail.com. Or you can hit us up on Instagram. Show us the drink that you make. If you make the real one, put it in a clear glass. I kind of want to see the color. Mm-hmm. If you make 
If you make the white claw one, um, you could send me pictures of that. But like, I know, <laughs> I know what it looks like. But you could send that to our Instagram at Dead Drunk Crime or on Twitter at Dead Drunk Crime. You can go to our website and read the whole blog post for this and check out all of our links there and our sources. Yeah. Right at deaddrunkpodcast.com and you can find the link for our merch in all of those blog posts from our website and in the show notes below yeah dude that's awesome do you have a caboose planned um because i I, could well because i found one that i wanted it's a quiz that i wanted to to quiz Ooh, okay i love quizzes yeah it's called would you win the circle (laughs) (laughs) i haven't finished watching it so i hope that there are no spoilers i really haven't watched a lot yet but do you want to tell our listeners what the circle is oh okay you guys so i'm not big into reality shows but i was like "Eh, i don't know what this is it sounds interesting let me try it and it's a reality show from netflix so you can binge the whole thing they drop like four episodes at once and they put all these people into different apartments in one building but they can't see each other they just communicate they can't leave the apartment they just communicate through the The circle circle. which is this social network thing and you could talk to it it's so cool like i want everybody to have it and you go circle message shuby and like it pulls up the person's profile and you can message them and so you could be yourself which was actually a lot of contestant strategies yeah. or you could be someone completely different like Seaburn who used pictures of his girlfriend and used the name Rebecca and he's my favorite yeah he's awesome well he's one of my favorites I, yeah I've only watched a couple episodes but I'm I love it it's, oh, it's fun. so funny I love it so much so I want to <laughs> see if Shelby would win the circle or not are you ready yeah so are you catfishing yes my picture will be myself, but my traits will be catfished. No, I'm being myself. Or let me flip a coin. No, I'm being myself. I can't. I can't keep up a charade like that for that long. All right. Charade. <laughs> what do you do when you're under pressure? Break down crying. Run away. Can't even. Diamonds are made under pressure. Oh, that's a sassy response. But I definitely break down crying. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I think I would be diamonds are made under pressure because I literally do everything at the last minute. Yeah. Literally everything. <laughs> How would you describe yourself? Aggressive, shy, funny, or insecure? Well, like, most of those are bad. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Aggressive, like... Funny? I don't particularly think I'm funny. I think you're funny. Okay. Right. I feel like that's the best one out of all of them. Yeah. I mean, shy is also okay. You're not shy. No. That's why I can't. I'm not aggressive, though. No, I think you're funny. You're okay. insecure. Don't know what for. <laughs> anyway, just had to sing that. Okay. What is your profile picture of? Is it a bikini pic? Mm-mm. A cute smiling photo? Mm. A photo of someone else, because I'm catfishing, or my best friend? <laughs> what if it's just a picture of a dog? <laughs> Jenny. <laughs> um, I guess that's smiling pic because I don't have any bikini pictures because I don't. I don't. <laughs> What's your main strategy? Flirting, making alliances with everyone, being the funniest one in the group, or going behind everyone's back? Mm, making alliances, I guess. I feel like that would be me too. Winner! You're going to win. You'll I'm be a fan winner. favorite, and you'll win the money. <laughs> Hell yeah, dude. Wow, that's awesome. A fan favorite gives you extra money, too. Oh, really? Yeah, Sammy won fan favorite. Oh, my God. I love that. Yeah. I like her. Me, too. 
She's fun. All right. So, uh, bye, bye. mom. Bye, mom. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>